Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino, and we have two guests on today's show. The first is going to be a familiar name to regular listeners of the show. Greg Lukianoff is the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education and author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Greg, thanks for the wave. Welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I'd like to point out to critics that I actually enjoy kombucha. Uh, there are people who actually believe that that uh, nobody nobody actually buys this on their own because just not to be hipster. I love the taste, damn it. <laughs> are they are they paying you to say that? I've got the plug. Like, they should be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and our guest, who we'll see what he's drinking. Uh, <laughs> our guest of honor is Lyle Asher. Lyle is an associate professor of English at Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon. His work focuses on Shakespeare, the Renaissance, the art of the novel, and more. It's actually very interested to hear your perspective uh, perspectives on the Renaissance, I should say, because I was a history major in college, and my focus was on the ancients and, and on Renaissance history. So how much I remember, I don't know. I remember Poggius Bracciolini and Niccolo Nicoli because I read their um correspondence is about finding old books. It was kind of cool. But anyway, we're not talking about the Renaissance today, so we might have to save that conversation for later. Today, we're talking about your 2018 Chronicle of Higher Education article, How Ed Schools Became a Menace. Lyle, welcome to So to Speak. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. So I'll take the moderator's privilege here and ask the first question. I know Greg's got a lot of thoughts as well. Lyle, your article doesn't mince words. You write that ed schools have long been Notorious for two mutually reinforcing characteristics, ideological orthodoxy and low academic standards. Uh, You write that even among ed school faculty members and deans, a study found a broad and despairing recognition that ed school training was frequently subjective, obscure, faddish, inbred, and politically correct. Overall, and you you use some very uh, flashy rhetorical language here that I I enjoy, uh, you describe ed schools as inquisition, not inquiry. Catechism, not curriculum, liturgy, not literacy, and places where ideas all around are piously assumed rather than rigorously examined. Uh, And then to get to kind of the free speech crux here, you say that when ed school trained students enter the rakes of college administration, they often find themselves in many fiefdoms of like-minded administrators and student assistants whose shared political vision is regarded less as a point of view than as a point of fact. So we at FIRE here have often seen administrators as kind of the drivers of a lot of the censorship we've seen on campus, especially early on in FIRE's history. Uh, Greg can speak a lot to this. But your suggestion here seems to be that it's not administrators per se, it's ed schools that are producing the administrators that are then producing the censorship. Would you say that's right? It is, yes. Um, one of the questions that, um, occurred to me starting back in 2010, when I began noticing, uh, um, a pattern in, uh, sort of these, uh, blow ups on college campuses. Uh, we had our first big one in 2010. It was the first time I'd ever even gotten anything, had anything to do with, uh, conduct hearings or anything like that. And, uh, so I won't go into the details I can, but it's the incident that I began the article with uh, the student who put some anti-racist posters up around campus. And these anti-racist posters were in response to a, another set of flyers inviting people to a luau. And on the invitation, the, the person who had, who had put them up had mistakenly put a Maori warrior uh, uh, the face of some, a, Maori, some, a Maori warrior. And so because this this was really just sort of geographical illiteracy, it wasn't racism. But anyway, the kid thought it, thought it was. And so he put up these anti-racist posters, which then inflamed a lot of people when they saw them. Well, um, so the kid was, you know, put through a conduct hearing and remarkably found guilty, even though he was a left-leaning uh 
Hispanic student um, and uh, was no racist, uh, vehemently anti-racist, in fact. Well, uh, you know, this, this went on for several months and it was a terrible thing for the college um, and terrible thing for the student and everybody involved. I thought it was a one-off. I just thought, well, we've made a couple of bad hires and, uh, uh, and that would be it. And it turned out not to be the case three years later with new administrators also at school trained, uh, something even worse happened. And uh, then I began looking around and was saying, what is going on here? Now, the Ed School connection hadn't really occurred to me. But uh, I just, uh, you know, in my between office hours, you know, I would go online and notice all the things. Thanks to fire, I was combing your pages, seeing what was happening. And I noticed that no matter where these blow ups happened, you began hearing similar sorts of phrases. You know, I think I mentioned in the in the clubhouse uh, discussion, the one that first caught my eye was uh, the one that you're all familiar with now that it's uh, it's not the intent, it's the impact that matters. There are various versions of this uh, remark. So, uh, and I knew this, you know, I've been around higher education for quite a long time and I'm used to crazy stuff coming out of the academy. You know, it should, we have, we have to have a place where, <laughs> where uh, unconventional ideas can be can be uh, bandied about, considered, and uh, either ratified or or deposed. So, uh, but this was entirely new and profoundly stupid and destructive, to put it mildly. So, I, I, the more I looked into it, I realized there was a certain. Uh, these were all coming from administrators, and I said, "Where are these people getting their educations?" And that's what began opening the door. And then I realized and it was unbelievable when I started looking at it. it was I think I may have mentioned somewhere, maybe in an email, that I played a grim little game I called Esta Golf, which was Ed School Trained Administrator Golf. <laughs> and I would basically just look up any campus problem. Uh, uh, and by problem, I mean conducts hearing gone wrong or some kind of infringement on free speech. And I'd see how far, how long it would take me to get back to a administrator that was trained in an education school. And it was, you know, usually one or two strokes and I was there. So, um, and that really started me off. Uh, I began looking into the history of ed schools and I was helped by, you know, Arthur Levine, who, you know, one of the, one of the remarks you, you attributed to me, I think Nico was in fact, Arthur Levine's remark. And he was the president of teachers college at Columbia for many years. And, uh, to his enormous credit, he undertook a study. Uh, I think it started in 2001 and went right up through 2005. It's a whole team of people who, and they weren't all from ed schools, by the way. They weren't all academics. He got people who were from, you know, uh, the media. Uh, I can't remember, but it's a it's a whole list of people. And he didn't. This was not an in-house job, right? Well, that that report is devastating, and uh, I had heard of it. But I read it, and you can find it online uh, very easily, and uh, all three volumes. Uh, it's worth reading. Well, that's really where what what uh, convinced me that I was onto something. Let's let's analyze. Let's put some meat to that thesis. Uh, you give us the example at your college, the Lewis and yes. Clark, involving the satirical flyer, <laughs> and you, you you posit that. Ed school trained administrators are advancing sort of an alternative curriculum, yes. especially surrounded alleged hatred or bigotry. And, and it had, the curriculum has two prongs. Anything that could be construed as bigotry and hatred should be construed as bigotry and hatred. It reminds me of the, um, of the old Christopher Hitchens saying that, uh, you know, it's, it's common on the right and the left to assume that anyone's lowest possible motive is their only possible motive. Yes. And two, that any such, any such instance of bigotry and hatred should be considered part of an epidemic. And in your piece, you cite three different controversies beyond your Lewis and Clark uh, example that yeah. kind of lend credence to this thesis. Uh, of course, there's the 2007 Delaware Residence Life Program, the Yale Halloween costume controversy, uh, and then you take a look and analyze deeply uh, the 
article by Daryl Wing Sue and his six co-authors, Racial Microaggressions in Everyday Life. Uh, Fire was involved in the Delaware program, the Yale Halloween costume controversy. Greg was intimately involved in the Yale Halloween costume controversy. So let, where, where does the nexus go there? Let's start there. Uh, to the Yale Halloween con- yeah. costume controversy? Well, you know, all of these have, it's an alloy. It's not only at school trained administrators. Um, but uh, the Yale, the Yale um, controversy began with uh, Bergwell Howard. And uh, I don't know anything about him personally, but I do know he's trained at an ed, ed school. And he simply arrived on campus. And I mean, one thing that's lost in that story is that a lot of people come away from the story. They, you know, heard something on the news and they assume that they were people were objecting to uh, terrible Halloween costumes that had been worn. You know, this was before Halloween. And if you actually comb the Web and talk to people at Yale, they say, well, we we really haven't had any bad Halloween costumes. the, the earliest one I could find was 10 years earlier, and that was just a report of one. There was no picture. There was no nothing. Um, so Howard had been formerly employed at Northwestern. So, you know, I went back and found, found out that, in fact, he'd sent the identical letter to Northwestern. Now, I don't know the history of Northwestern and whether they had had a Halloween controversy, but he arrives on campus, sends out this email. And the most remarkable thing about that email was... Uh, uh, the links that he attached and the links when you clicked on them, I think I mentioned this in the article, they led students into yeah, you say they had... an archive of just the most vile racist images you've ever seen. As if in case you're wondering, you know, uh, what racist images are, here they are. I can't imagine being a student of color or in fact a white student and clicking on those images and not being appalled. I'm not saying you should have sent them, but it's, it's rather ironic, isn't it? That um, we're, we are suggesting, he was suggesting that intentions don't matter. And uh, these images are bad regardless of the context. And he sends people to links to the very images. Uh, This is mind blowing to me. And uh, so, yeah. And for our listeners who don't, who don't recall the incident, this was, Bergwell Howard sent an email ahead of Halloween, as you reference, urging people or warning students not to wear insensitive Halloween costume, which the yeah, rever- right. uh, email re- uh, research reveals hadn't really been done at Yale or hadn't been worn at Yale in 10 years. At least there were no public reports yeah. of any insensitive Halloween costumes. But, That's right. Uh, and and then Greg, of course, arrived on campus and <laughs> saw Nicholas Christakis, the professor, well, he wasn't, he wasn't even the one who pushed back on Bergwell Howard. It was his wife, Erica, pushed That's back. Right. And, and, and yes. Nicholas, um, you know, was stepping in and seeking to address some of the student concerns. And Yeah, yeah and, and, you know, and, and Erica's... <laughs> he, he, oh, sorry, go ahead, Craig. Yeah, no, I, 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 as, you know, I think most listeners are going to know, but I was actually the one in the in Silliman Courtyard who recorded the video of the students berating Nicholas because, you know, I've been around for a long time and I and I I had someone, a critic, like laugh at me when I said this, but like I sincerely believe Nicholas Christakis would have been fired if it hadn't been documented that he showed incredible patience in the face of being balled out by these students who were just laughing. And he was really trying to address them. He was really trying to be kind and open-minded about it. But even the original email, like I've actually had had to read the email, Nerica Christakis's email aloud because um, the way it was misrepresented, like the the um, uh, Yale it was sending people out, and I don't know how intentional this was, but but I, I, I was at some a conference at Bard where someone said, well then I had someone on my campus uh, to tell students that they should work they should wear Klan robes, and I'm like. That's just a lie. That is not what she wrote. I'm pretty sure you know that's not what she wrote. But there, w- there was so much misinformation around it. And what people forget is that this was part of a, you know, a, a, a sort of a consciousness um, raising um, movement all across the country. There are about 100 different campuses. That these kind of incidents took place on all at the same time, all for one semester. And that this we also talk about them going after Mary Spellman, for example, um, in, in, at uh, Claremont McKenna. And it was 
it, it was only one of these things where it seemed where it seemed like they just didn't really care about who got who the target was. Uh, they they just needed you know to 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 see that they could get things done. And they got Mary Spellman fired, for example. They wanted a newspaper at University of Massachusetts Amherst to be banned. Um, and and Erica Christakis quit her job. Um, uh, she doesn't. She doesn't lecture at Yale anymore. Uh, Nicholas um, quit um, when students said they they refused to receive their diploma from him. And I'm like, for wait, wait, you refused to d- receive your diploma from someone who showed ungodly patience in the face of being berated by students. Um, it 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 was a case that really I, I found just inc- incredibly depressing. And being there for it was um, one of the you know saddest things I've seen in my career. Yeah, and I I hadn't. I I hadn't even thought to think about who the administrators were behind. Well, obviously we thought about who the administrators were behind the controversy, but not where they came from, you know, as in so far as where they were trained. And, you know, Bergwell Howard, as you write, as an ed school trained associate vice president for student engagement. I've always just thought of student engagement professionals or administrators on campuses as always kind of being of the censorious type. Not all of them, of course, but yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, and there were other, again, this is the thing very often uh, um, it's the ed school trained administrators who start it and then other people will, will join, you know, and uh, so you can look at the letter was signed by a lot of people that, that is to say the original letter warning people about Halloween costumes and, uh, and I didn't, some of them were professors, right, uh, who had been on this committee, but he, but it's very often initiated um, by, uh, by folks from ed schools. And, and by the way, you know, uh, um, that's how I, I didn't know Nicholas, but I had, I wrote something, uh, the following year in, um, in, uh, the American scholar, uh, called low definition in higher education. And I mentioned specifically that crisis, um, uh, as one of my examples, and I sent it, I, again, I'd never met Nicholas or Erica, and I sent it to him, and then we began sort of trading stories and, and uh, writing uh, letters to one another, just sort of trying to think through this. Um, and of course, it was very helpful, and I realized just what wonderful people both he and Erica are. And Greg, you're exactly right. That letter that Erica wrote is a model <laughs> of critical thinking care and, con- and genuine concern for all students. And I will say this, for minority students in particular, uh, that's the other thing that's, that's often lost. And to see it mep- misrepresented like that is really quite maddening. Well, what's funny is, and a lot of things that we see, it's it, it's sort of like a, in that sense, sort of old fashioned, you know, 1960s style, you're not our parents argument, you know, essentially, like, should we allow students the ability to be transgressive and, and to get through this stuff themselves? And, you know, Erica Christakis's background is child development. She wrote an absolutely genius book called The Importance of Being Little. She, 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 she was basically advocating for uh, for. Um, a responsible way to sort of help people, you know, grow and define themselves and be empowered in their lives. But yeah, the way it was misrepresented in so many, um, so many places, just, it just, it just blows me away. And they are the two of the kindest, most caring people I've ever met. Um, so Absolutely, it, yes. them being the targets made it particularly shocking. Well, and, and just, and just one other thing too, the, the, this goes back to the Delaware case. See, I, I didn't quite realize just how important the Delaware case was until I began looking uh, on websites and discovering that, as we talked about at the Clubhouse uh, discussion, Greg, that, and of course, you know this, uh, instead of Kerr and Tweedy uh, sort of sinking into obscurity because of all the shame they brought on the University of Delaware, uh, among uh, sort of the administrative professionals, you know, of which there are around more than 20,000, you know, they were sort of heroes. Why? Because they had, as, as she and Tweedy put it in that 2017 retrospective, again and again, we are now educators. That is, she developed this cur- quote-unquote curricular model for uh, college educators, which or college administrators, which allowed them to, at least according to her, begin delivering their own curriculum uh, on uh, on the administrative side. So, for example, many schools began having, and Lewis and Clark as well, uh, orientation sessions that would last uh, a full semester. That is, you'd have a weekly or biweekly or once a month, twice a month. 
And this is fairly regular. I don't know if they've dropped off now, but uh, it's fairly common. So it's a way of, and, and I wouldn't put it this way were it not for the fact that, you know, Twe Tweedy and Kerr in that essay put it this way themselves. They don't talk in that essay about how much this is helping students. What they insist on is how great it is to be educators. <laughs> and so what this allowed for, it was a foot in the door and it allowed for administrators to then be taking on or imagining themselves as people who had as much right to be educating students as anybody else on campus. And so that was, and, and they, to this day, I think still have. And that's, that's, that's Kathleen reasons. Kerr and James Tweedy. And I think it's important that we give our listeners, because we're talking about a Delaware program that is at this point, what, 14 years old. Yes. Uh, this is a program, you call it the curricular model in which uh, Kerr and Tweedy tried to introduce uh, education, I guess, as part of their role as administrators, whatever you want to call it. Let me let me run through some of the of what they did, and then you can ex describe the program to me. Uh, as part of this program, students were questioned by their RAs about their political views on controversial topics. They were asked about their sexual identities and whether they would date people from different ethnic groups. One program required students to stuff marshmallows in their mouths, rendering them speechless in proportion to their lack of privilege. The more privileged, the fewer mar marshmallows, and therefore the easier it was to speak. Groups of students were asked to list on posters the stereotypical characteristics associated with blacks, Hispanics, Asians, and Jews, thus exciting animosities while ostensibly ameliorating them. Administrators unselfconsciously referred to lesson plans as treatments and interventions, and they dictated, quote, learning outcomes. Each student will learn about the forms of oppression. This is from the program. Each student will learn about the forms of oppression linked with each identity group. Each student will learn that, that systemic oppression exists in our society. Each student will learn the benefits of dismantling systems of oppression. So let's get, let's provide a little bit more context sure. here by this program. Yeah, no, no. I, 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 I need to talk about this because, um, you know, this is what I, I was very candid about this. This was the... Uh, um, program that really hit me very personally because it was so nuts and it was covered so poorly in my opinion in the media. Um, but it was, it basically like when I started at fire in 2001, um, I would hear a lot from conservatives about sort of like brainwashy programs on campus. And I, I, I and I saw ones that were heavy handed, but n nothing that I, that, that I thought was like really over the top. And then we start, uh, we find out about the, this case at the university of Delaware, because parents are saying, uh, my son attended a session where they took all the materials back at the end of the session. And I was like, what, what's that about? So we really started looking into it and we got 400 pages of, of information and it just got worse and worse. And it was this incredibly heavy handed, um, I, you, you, know, um, you know, brainwashing program to essentially make people, uh, I, I guess, less racist, to be more interested in sustainability, to get them to address to take on very specific political points of view, which I, uh, unlike anything I've ever seen, there was a speech code um, involved. There was a student who was, you know, and, and these one-on-one -on -one sessions that RAs were forced to have with their students, they were one-on-one, -on -one, like one student, like talking to a student in the room. And one of the most amazing, you know, things that happened in it was there was a female student being questioned by her male RA, you know, when did you discover your sexual identity? Her response was none of your damn business. And the student got in trouble for it. And it was just, it was just so mild. And it was so upsetting to watch people actually, in some cases, look at this and be like, well, this is just like conservatives complaining about. I'm like, no, first of all, not a conservative. Second of all, this is nuts. Like, this, like, this is such an exaggerated. And they uh, they had like a little ceremony, uh, you know, commemorating the death of the University of Delaware program. I talk about it on Learning Liberty. And these are people who, frankly, should have been fired after that. But they've moved up in the ranks um, and they even came out with a book in 2020 based on their whole curricular model. What they mean, to be clear, what the curricular model means is that without academic oversight, they believe that they are the real teachers, the, um, these education school administrators. They are the real teachers and they do the real curriculum and the real teaching. Um, and I, Carrie, the head of the AUP at the time was a, was a friend of mine, um, uh, Carrie, uh, Carrie Nelson. And he uh, heard, heard this defended at a fire event at one point um, as being like, this is an expression of the RA's, you know, freedom of speech. And it's like, no, this was imposed on the RA's. A lot of them didn't like this program. They came to us because of that. Um, but he went off on the idea like you did this. You're trying to usurp the power of the pro professors like you did this with no a, a academic oversight. This is just you trying to impose your views. This, there's nothing academic about this. Um, 
But amazingly, you know, uh, thanks to Lyle, I'd, I'd never really made the connection to to education schools. Well, here's the remarkable thing, too. Uh, you know, we have we have to thank Jan Blitz for this because, you know, he was a professor there and went over to uh, Kathleen Kerr's office and said, absolutely, and, and yeah. asked her about this. I've heard these terrible things from my students. And now here's the here's the telling detail. She handed the, in the entire program over to him to look at proudly. Now, the reason I say that's important is because this tells you what happens when you are surrounded by people who agree with you. You never hear anything else in the echo chamber. And here's something that this is interesting, because then when you start going back through the history of ed schools, I came across, um, I, I knew Edie Hirsch just indirectly at UVA when I was a graduate student there. And Edie Hirsch, um, mentions in one of his books, I think 2009, uh, and it's, um, I, I can't quite remember the, the title of the book, but he details something or tells a story that's very interesting. Uh, he was, he taught at UVA for, you know, 30 or 40 years. And in 1996, he decided to teach a course at the Ed School because he had two books under his belt. Uh, the, the latest one was, um, um, the schools we need and why we don't have them, which have been a notable New York Times book of the year, right? And before that, of course, cultural literacy. So he uh, goes to the ed school to teach a course. And, and here's what's amazing. The, what was the subject of the course? The subject of the course was the, uh, the so-called achievement gap and how to fix it. Um, I can talk a little bit about that in a moment, if, if need be, if we have time. But the key point is that he... You know, he, he was he was easily the most celebrated professor in the Curry School of Education when he went over there. And his his class should have been quite large. And he only had, you know, just a few students the next year. The same thing. The third year, the enrollment was still, you know, maybe nine or ten students. And he was, you know, just shocked that this was happening. And one student confided in. He said, look, uh, you know, you should uh be uh, sort of proud of the students who are here were quite brave because we were strongly advised against taking your course by the ed school faculty. <laughs> so, and if, and the more you look back into the history of ed schools, it is a closed system and it's, it's that re is responsible for its dysfunction. You know, one of the things I mentioned in that uh, piece is that, you know, when I was at, when I was at UVA uh, in graduate school in English, there were, it, it was fireworks constantly. In fact, Edie Hirsch mentions um, that, uh, you know, he says this would never have happened over at the school, College of Arts and Sciences. He said, you know, even if you had a, uh, had uh, a celebration of, you know, the uh, Declaration of Independence as they had just had, I wasn't there at the time, but in 1976, right? And he said, but it, so it's obviously Thomas Jefferson looms large there, but they invited the history department invited people who would take the other side against Jefferson. That was part of what a university was supposed to do. In fact, now this is a shock. He doesn't mention this, but one of the people who was invited and came and attended was Jacques Derrida. And he did a quote unquote deconstructive reading of the declaration of independence. And let me tell you something. It's a brilliant piece of writing. Uh, and when I say deconstruction, he's not he's, he's, he's not dismissing it at all. He's just saying that it doesn't seem to be or isn't actually what it suggests it is. Uh, it's, 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 again, not at all uh, against such a declaration. It's just trying to get underneath it. It's it's a brilliant uh, piece. Well, you know, he, at, that, at the point that Edie Hirsch is telling this story in 2009, uh, he was looking back and saying, you know, this would never have happened at the College of Arts and Sciences. Well, now fast forward 10 years and uh, it's happening. You know, you may have seen just uh, about two months ago where a student who, a medical student at UVA who had uh, questioned, I guess back in 2018, the microaggressions uh, article uh, in, in a, I think it was a symposium of some kind, was eventually uh, kicked out of the school. You know, so now it's moved over, not even to the College of Arts and Sciences, but to, but to the medical school. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and and one thing that, oh, 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 sorry. No, go ahead. 
I just wanted to explain for listeners part of the connection here. So um, since we're writing Coddling the American Mind, um, I've been doing a series called Catching Up with Coddling, um, and I'm trying to finish it. I originally thought it could be one article because I'm an idiot. Um, it, it is now like 18 uh, like blog posts, including some that are very, very long. Um, but, you know, we, we covered a lot of ground in coddling, so we had a lot of work to do. And we're trying to figure out one thing that we realized we left out was how are the students coming to college uh, already so sort of trained in sort of some of the social justice language and, and some of this very hot ideology. And I started to realize um, that the, uh, it became very clear, not, I didn't start to realize, it became very clear since we wrote the book that some of this is coming from K through 12, that sort of like the level of um, sort of political, and to, to be frank, indoctrination that you're seeing in some K through 12 is is pretty severe. And ultimately, you know, where'd that be coming from? That'd be coming from uh, uh, ed schools. And we also pointed out that in 2006, uh, FIRE successfully defeated a social justice uh, requirement among that ed school accrediting board, but failed against the fact that Teachers College, probably the most influential teachers college in the country at, at Columbia, um, had a, had actually a policy that said you will be evaluated on your commitment to social justice. Back And, and we were like, that's a political litmus test. And we fought this in the Chronicle of Higher Education. We fought in the New York Post. And then I reread Lyle's article. Um, and it was, it just, it just pointed out to me, it's like, oh my God, are you saying that like some, the stuff that we're fighting in, I'm realizing is much worse than I thought in K through 12. Also some of the consistently the administrators that we think are, you know, most against free speech, to be frank, um, are coming out of like a, a, the same institution. Cause I, I hadn't really made the connection that a lot of campus administrators had ed degrees. Um, and so that, that's how we ended up here just to give, give yeah. some late context. <laughs> and, and of course, here's, here's the greater irony. And this, if this doesn't make your blood boil, nothing will. And I, I, I wrote an essay in, uh, Quillette, uh, I think it was last 2020, August 19 called look who's talking about educational equity. Um, and here's the remarkable thing. The achievement gap that Edie Hirsch was getting at uh, in, uh, he's been writing essentially on the achievement gap his whole career, uh, since he began writing about um, uh, education. He's interested in K through eight education, and he's particularly interested in the question of reading. And uh, so when I began going down that street and, and seeing how students are taught to read, see, I, most people have no idea, and I had no idea either, that... Um, Education schools have for 30, 40 years been turning a blind eye to what we know about reading instruction for young children. Uh, for 20 years, we have cognitive science. There's no question about uh, how one should teach children how to read. And there are two parts to it, just decoding. Uh, and then there's a second part to it later on about vocabulary building. But the first part, and this is the other thing I mentioned on Clubhouse, um, is the fact that, uh, you know, uh, what we used to do in the United States and elsewhere in the world uh, was teach phonics, phonemes. And so that students, and it's what most people in my generation grew up with, uh, and it was what your parents did, you know, they sound it out, right? Everybody knows that. Um, but uh, ed schools have not been teaching that. They have been, um, th there's a whole series of sort of movements. And the one that re really took hold was so-called, the so-called three queuing movement, uh, starting in around the late 60s. Um, and I would recommend that any of your listeners go to Emily Hanford's remarkable pieces on APM called, there are two of them, one called Hard Words, Why Aren't Our Kids Taught to Read? And the second one is At a Loss for Words. And, uh, and if you do any research in this area at all, you realize that uh, a good portion of what we think of as the achievement gap is based or comes out of the absolute failure of education schools to teach teachers how to teach students to read. Um, and so when we look at, you know, the fact that, you know, 60% of uh, fourth graders are uh, not reading at grade level. And when we're talking about low income and minority students, that number can go up as high as 70% and in some districts, 80%. So you see, then when we get to college and we talk about 
um, the achievement gap, and we blame it all on racism. No one's denying that racism is a serious issue in this country. But uh, the, it, if you can't look at the, uh, the thing that you can actually change, that is, ed schools can actually change how students are, uh, or how their students are taught to teach reading, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, um, it's really missing the, the crucial piece in all of this. Um, well, you, uh, and, you actually, I mean, in your article, you talk about how it's hard to pierce any of these orthodoxies, whether it's the orthodoxy yes. about what pedagogy should be or what's politically correct or anything else. And you have in your article kind of an argument that Greg has, has made before that he calls the perfect rhetorical for fortress, which is essentially that they build this fortress of rhetoric around them that insulates uh, any of their orthodoxies from argumentation. And I'm just going to quote... Largely ad hominem. Basically, it's a, it's a series of fortifications that uh, allow you to never actually get to the, what, the point of what someone's arguing. You can base it on identity. You can base it on personal failings. You can base it on any... There's, there's all sorts of like quick dodges. And we have layer after layer after layer of them. Um, and it, you know, it, it makes it so that if you look at like the way people argue on Twitter, it's like, are you actually arguing about the substance of your argument? 99% of the time... Um, it, it's just not the case. Oh, and now, now is a good time. One thing that definitely got me more concerned about this is, um, Bonnie Snyder at fire is coming out with a book called undoctrinate. Um, it's, it's, it's her own book. Um, the forward, uh, is going to be by John McWhorter and she does a great job of, of talking about some of this really heavy handed, um, ideology at, and, uh, but also compared to sort of learning outcomes, you know, declining and the, and basically ma making you realize it's like, so we're spending a tremendous amount of time on these these teachers' political opinions without teaching them arithmetic, reading, all of these basic things, and it's just right. well, um, it, and, it really. And we we know we 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 can we, there are schools in which uh, you can take students from disadvantaged backgrounds. The South Bronx, for example, in the Quillette piece, uh, I just focused on the Icon schools run by superintended by Jeffrey Litt. Uh, who is just a, a remarkable human being. He's been teaching sort of sequenced uh, knowledge-based curriculum and since around 1990. He took over the, or he was made supervisor of the Icon schools when they started around 2000. Well, uh, and again, those schools are 95% uh, uh, Black and Hispanic, low income in the South Bronx. And uh, of course, parents are, uh, dying to get in. They, you know, I think maybe, I don't know what the number is now, maybe one in, or two in a hundred applications. Um, and uh, they're charter schools and they do it. They show, ex and they show you uh, that the, that the so-called achievement gap uh, can be, can be erased. Uh, and, and they're doing it all the time. Now you would think that you, given the success of those schools, that ed schools would say, Hey, let's go and see what they're doing. They don't. Um, and, and, you know, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I was going to say, I, it's kind of a threshold question here. Where did education schools come from? I'm not an education major. My girlfriend all throughout college was, and I always kind of wondered why was she, why was she in an education school and not, you know, if she wanted to be an English teacher, why wasn't she studying English and taking some perhaps pedagogy classes? Why was there this whole separate school where if you want to learn English, you were studying it from education school, English. It just never made much sense to me as someone who has, you know, as a history major, a passion for history. Yes. I always felt like the people who taught best were the people who developed a deep understanding and learning and passion for the subject, not this yeah. like overall superficial understanding of everything that it seemed to me you got from education schools. I, you know, I again, there, there's probably a good reason for it, but I just never quite understood it. And I, I tried to actually, I had a, some of the same instincts you have, Lyle, when I was a journal, uh, I was a double major journalism and history. And I wrote for the student newspaper at Indiana university and at Indiana, they publish the grade distributions every semester. And I thought, Oh, it would be interesting to see which schools within the university give out the most A's. Yeah, so, I know the answer to that. Well, it's not the education <laughs> school. The, oh, most, really? the most days come from the Jacobs School of Music, which in 2011 oh. 
80% of all grades given in that school were A's. But the School of Education was close behind with 77.96% of all yeah. grades given out in the school were, were A's. And then you have to go all the way down to the School of Health, Physical Education, and Recreation at 62% to get anywhere close to those two other schools. And I don't know. It's just again. Oh, Lyle, I'm going to make one more pitch um, uh, for uh, finally, people have been asking me so much um, about what's going on in K through 12 to, to, to write something or say something. And I, I gave it a lot of thought. So I came out with, I think part 18 of, of catching up with coddling is my, I call it empowering of the American mind. It's 10, it's 10 uh, ideas for um, K through 12 reform. And what's funny about it is they're basically old, small L liberal ideas. They're about, you know, no, no, um, uh, no compelled speech, respecting freedom of conscience, you know, fostering independence and all this, all this kind of stuff that, that um, I think would have been uncontroversial not so long ago, but I'm, you know, I'm waiting to get my head chopped off by, uh, um, uh, by, by, <laughs> by critics and we'll see. Well, you know, one, one reason for being, quote unquote, brave on this subject, uh, and, 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 and one has to be, uh, and, and I want to say this to everyone, including professors out there who are on the fence, um, um, this is hurting most uh, underprivileged students. That's who it's hurting. If you look in the record of oh, what ed schools have done. And um, t- teachers, by the way, they're, they are in, in the trenches here. So this is no disrespect meant to teachers in the uh, K through 12 system. Most of them are political moderates. Uh, and and, and the, the trouble with most of them is they haven't been given the tools that they need to be great teachers. They can be, and some ed schools are doing that. The good news, and this is amazing, the good news is that we're now up to 50% of undergraduate education pro- programs who are teaching the science of reading instruction. That's the undergraduate level. At the graduate level, we're up to 35%. 35% who are, again, teaching the science of reading instruction to their teachers who will then take them out uh, in the schools. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's really, um, uh, it's almost criminal what we're doing to these underprivileged students and the minority students who, who go to schools and are not taught. The, and it's really the most important thing, because what we know is if you're if you're behind in reading at the fourth grade uh, because of the so-called Matthew effect, that is the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, that uh, that prevents you from excelling in every uh, other subject uh, that you'll be faced with uh, right through high school. So I, I look at this and I just uh, can't quite believe what, what what I'm seeing. And some of the things that are really horrifying people, because I, I, I should say a little bit about my background. The um, I, I worked, I live in Southeast DC and, um, you know, which, which was typically sort of like the, the poorest uh, quarter of, of DC. Um, and in the 1990s, you know, it was definitely, you know, high murder rate I had, and I worked with students in inner city high schools, um, in, in, in the nineties. And I got to, I was lucky enough to work with some of the best and brightest kids, the ones who are the most self-motivated. And, you know, when they showed up sad someday, it was because someone got shot like at, at school. Um, and I, and it really brought things home to me, but I, I see some efforts coming out of, um, uh, some education activists to like, for example, get rid of honors classes, you know, because they're not, they, they, they think they're not diverse enough. And I think about all these kids, all of, none of whom were white, um, who that was the only place they felt normal and, and, and safe. And so, some of this thinking it's, it, it, it doesn't, um, it, 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 it's, it's kind of funny. Cause I think sometimes when, when people see like the title coddling the American mind, they're, 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 they're thinking that we're kind of like not concerned about these students, but you know, I keep on saying, it's like, actually, I think we're more concerned about, <laughs> about actually helping these students. It doesn't have to fit your ideology. Well, and that's, and that's, you know, uh, again, when, when Hirsch's cultural literacy came out, that book was lumped in together uh, with closing of the America, the American mind. And they couldn't be more different. Hirsch is a, uh, a sort of an old school liberal. He's interested in uh, bridging the achievement gap. These these books and the curriculum that he offers for free through the core knowledge program. Uh, this is for uh, um, disadvantaged children primarily, because what we know is that good schools. Now, this is a crucial point. Good schools 
close the achievement gap, everybody gets better, but you know who gets better faster <laughs> are the students who come from homes uh, that don't have books. Their parents maybe don't take them to uh, the museums or the libraries. They don't listen to, you know, words at the dinner converse, uh, over dinner that, that uh, the kids from advantaged homes hear. So Hirsch's whole uh, program is to make sure that public schools close that gap and basically give uh, disadvantaged students, minority students in particular, what the other students have just by being in a more privileged home. So I think one has to be, again, uh, I have no fear on this because I, I, I know that, uh, you know, what this is about is uh, the underprivileged children most, most of all. I, I want to, well, actually, before we get off to that, because it's kind of on this topic, I have a, a, teacher friend in the K through 12 environment, who's increasingly learned, uh, concerned about this idea of grading equity. Have you heard about that? Yeah. The idea yes. that essentially you wipe out F's or failing grades or something. What are your thoughts on that? Well, one does, one never wants to discourage students. That's absolutely clear, but it's, it's really just breaking the thermometer, um, uh, you know, if it, would be, it would be like saying you've got a global warming problem. He says, let's just break all the thermometers. Um, it's not the student's fault um, that they have all these failing grades. Uh, so equity is, is, to my mind, I mean, the way it's understood now, the old-fashioned sense of equity is the one I'm for. Um, um, doing it that way is, is at, at, the, at the wrong end of the of the two. We need to go way back. If we want to talk about equity, what you have to do is make sure uh, that uh, you start at the very beginning and you say, we are going to make sure that when first graders arrive at school, they all are going to be given uh, what some of our students have from home. And that may mean, by the way, and this is where money really should be spent, that may mean that you need to spend two more hours with those students. That may mean that you need to uh, pay teachers in, let's say, inner city schools more money. Uh, uh, but of course, there's a problem there because very often teachers who are in these inner city schools uh, will will want to get out uh, and go to maybe an easier. Get burned out. Yeah, I, and I've, I've and I've known a lot a lot of great teachers over the years. That's right. So, and you know, there are all sorts of union rules about increasing their pay. I'd be for doubling their pay. I mean, this is not in some ways about about money. Um, because those, those schools need great teachers. And I think their parents, uh, most parents want their kids to go to good schools. Um, and I don't think most parents, frankly, are, are on board with this equity nonsense. Uh, by that, I mean, uh, doing away with grades, uh, because the grades are really in some ways, of course, uh, a referendum on, 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 uh, colleges and universities and schools and the United States itself. So we need to have a, a gauge where we can understand exactly what it is we're doing and what we're doing wrong. Well, it looks like the edu the education school at Indiana, at least in 2011, essentially did away with grades when they gave everyone A's, but what are you going to do? My, my 10th thing on my, um, on, on my recommendations was, um, you know, if, if it's, if it's broke, fix it, you know, and, and that's the one where I'm getting the most blowback, uh, because, um, because I'm saying like, you know, we've got to rethink this if it's, if, if it's not working, if it's not really helping out, you know, um, the, the, the disadvantaged kids, we got to rethink everything and, be, and, you know, try to be dynamic about it and try experiments. And, and immediately people are like, uh, you know, that's charter schools. And I'm like, I never said charter school. I'm looking at every possible thing. And, and in a lot of cases, I'm both talking about disadvantaged schools, but when it comes to the hot ideology, I'm seeing these more in the elite schools that have a, a wildly disproportionate effect on our entire democracy, which I absolutely, when I got, when I got to Stanford, coming from a lower economic, you know, uh, quartile, I, I couldn't believe, I'd never heard of places like Andover and, and, and Exeter. And I was like, it just felt like I've been introduced to the conspiracy. Apparently all these people went to Andover. It's, it's horrifying. Um, but I'm hearing a lot of the hot ideology coming from the private schools. And for some of this, I think one of the things that would be helpful would be have alternative, you know, start a new Andover, start, start a new Exeter. Because I think that, I think right now that if, if somebody decided to start a company that had a really rigorous education on basically sort of in a, with a small L liberal kind of focus um, in Manhattan, for example, um, that parents would be lining out the door to get into something. Absolutely. Like that. Yes. Well, let me just mention one, one last thing on this subject. 
the uh, there's a book uh, to go back a second the microaggressions essay and i think we all probably agree with this the microaggressions essay is getting something that's that's important that is we all want to be culturally sensitive to to people uh, and there are lots of mistakes we can make but the difference between that essay and a book that i want to you know just mention here lisa delpit's book from the early 1990s i don't know if you know that book but it's called other people's children uh, what a remarkable book, because it does everything that all the sorts of things that the microaggression essay does, except it's humane, it's understanding. It doesn't use the word perpetrator, which is like every in every paragraph of that ridiculous essay by Daryl Wing Tzu. Uh, and I say ridiculous. because Lyle, can I actually interrupt you here? Yes, to, sure. Because I want to I want to give some meat to what you're saying and quote from you directly. You said you argue okay. that the, the essay, which is racial microaggressions in everyday life. Yes stacks yeah. the deck rhetorically. Uh, accused microaggressors only seem to have cogent explanations for what they said or did. They don't explain, they explain away. They don't defend themselves, they get defensive, and so on. And even the most tentative passages, you write that the drive for indictment overwhelms any hint of ambivalence or ambiguity. Absolutely. And the remarkable thing about that essay, and again, you know, I just hear about these essays, and I, I fail to do what I always tell my students to do go to the source, read the essay, <laughs> don't listen to anybody else. And when I read the essay, it was much worse than I'd ever imagined. One of the things it does, it, it actually commits what I would say macroaggressions itself throughout the essay. Uh, for example, all the examples he uses, uh, or I should say the authors use, uh, potential microaggressions are themselves uh, rather uh, racially stereotypical, for example. He always suggests that it's black people who are going to be called down for speaking loudly. He calls that a cultural style. <laughs> so the idea somehow is, and he, this is him suggesting this, this is a cultural style of a black person to be very loud and animated. And the Asian students, on the other hand, are, 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 asked to speak up because that's their cultural style to be quiet. Uh, yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, the, the, the baked in assumptions, it, 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 I, I had this feeling early in my career <clears throat> when I was going to um, some of these conferences that were all administrators, you know, and then uh, to be clear, I think a lot of these are very nice people, even though we, we, we butt heads with them a lot, but I was hearing people, uh, you know, older white people from Ohio talk about like, Oh, we all grew up this way. You know, we know how it is it's just all white people. I'm like, I did not grow up that way. <laughs> yes, most, of, most of the people who are younger than you did not actually grow up in, in communities that were entirely white or not no, immigrant, exactly. or, you know, unless they, um, the, 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 and the, um, the amount of stereotyping that, that actually came out was like, wow, I don't think that like what. So you think you got, you need more stereotyping ty typing to help. And one thing I want to say very clearly, microaggressions in the sense of like uh, little slights, absolutely real, worth studying, very interesting academically. But as soon as you turn them into rules. Um, they, they, be, they become problematic from a free speech perspective, but they also become intolerant of diversity because it, because one of the things that we've seen is that you know people who are not who are not neurotypical, for example, people who are autistic, but even people from other countries, they show up and they're like, so there are sixteen different very subtle rules about the way I'm supposed to talk here, or I'm in trouble. Yes, right. Well, and this is this is the genius of Lisa Delpit's book because she she she's not about indictment at all. She's just going through because she's she's taught in so many different places. She herself is African American, uh, but she taught in Alaska, and she just goes through the mistakes one is in, likely to make because you don't realize uh, that that a, what a particular student says or the way she says it. Uh, means one thing in the school environment, but it means a totally different thing at home. And it's just, uh, it's a lovely book. And it's the kind of book that really every educator should be reading because there's zero indictment. There's simply uh, an attempt at understanding. It's, it's like a sort of fine-grained ethnography. Uh, and that's what we need instead of uh, a rule book uh, uh, that's really based on a kind of melodramatic understanding of good and evil. Um, so the, the 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 great stuff is out there, but you know it's not a, it doesn't uh, it doesn't supply people with a sledgehammer. That's the problem. Well, and you have a hard time even when you have the sledgehammer breaking through 
because as you point in, out in your essay, when the individuals proffering these theories come armed in the rhetoric of caring and community, it can seem impossible, especially if purported beneficiaries are students, to break through. Yes, uh, it's a real difficulty. It's, um, you know, it, it's one thing to, um, I think Foucault mentioned this at some point, believe it or not, he was, he was talking about how, um, you know, it's one thing when you are, when, when you get a prohibition, uh, you can, you can not do it. This is back, it goes back to de Tocqueville as well. When somebody says thou shalt not, uh, you cannot do it and you think what you want, right? <laughs> but the trouble with this, when the prohibitions are disguised and they come in the voice of reason and concern and love, well, that gets into your soul. So it's not just a prohibition, but it uh, divides you into a person who is either, either good, uh, good morally or, or bad. And that's the problem. I think a lot of people, even when they know that this is destructive, it's very hard to get a, go against it because of the because of the rhetoric of, of care and concern that it comes uh, cloaked in. Yeah, you write in your essay, being an ally of oppressed groups, we are told, requires validating and supporting people who are socially or institutionally positioned below yourself, regardless of whether you understand or agree with where they're coming from, and a sure symptom of having internalized one's own sense of dominance, feeling authorized to debate or explain away the experience of targets groups. That, you know who that is, by the way? I didn't, mention, I didn't mention the author at the time because no one knew who she was, and I'd never heard of her. That was Robin DiAngelo in an early essay. <laughs> oh, wow. She, yeah. She, I, I I, I was trying to, somebody sent me an email that he'd gotten from some applicant and, uh, and I think it was, and they, and, and the applicant had used the phrase, um, oh, I can't remember, it was something literacy. Uh, but, um, so I looked, I looked up the term and it took me to this essay that I mentioned in the article and the, the author, one of the, it was a co-authored essay. Uh, and it was Robin DiAngelo, and she was writing that. And she, I mean, just here's the other thing. You know, I think John McWhorter made the point that that uh, White Fragility is a is a racist book, uh, and I found that essay to be uh, I don't mean intentionally racist, but I mean uh, implicitly so because it, as I said in the essay, it treats black people and minorities uh, as the way you would treat children. That is, you must, and by the way, it would be a bad way to treat children too. That is, you must support them. And I always want to say too, which black people? Do you imagine that black people agree on these issues? I know plenty of black people. And, uh, and typically they don't agree on almost anything. <laughs> just, like, just like other white people and brown people. So it's a very strange view that we have. And maybe, Greg, this goes back maybe to something you said. You know, I grew up in a nationally integrated high school. I was in the rural South and we are Kentucky, at least not sure if that counts anymore. Uh, but you know, it's only really when I came up to the Pacific Northwest that I started thinking there's very strange relationships between whites and black people and white people would very often, again, I hate to use these categories, but, but talk in this very distant way about, um, African-Americans. And I just, it, it was quite strange to me. And I, I keep seeing this. I think it points to a very segregated society, especially in the among the members of the overclass, you know, people who uh, may or may not have gone to uh, private schools, you know. I, I think we're doing a lot to, to prevent genuine friendships um, across lines and, of difference. Oh, absolutely, and that's yes. so powerful, you, you know, and, and, the, the, and that's one of the things that I talk a little bit about in the, in the 10 things about like, you know, let, let students, I don't know, get to know each other. Uh, but I have to actually kind of wrap it up, Nico. Um, yeah, I think I got through we address most of my questions, you know, any, any other questions that you might have, I would direct our listeners to the article itself, how ed schools became a menace published in the Chronicle of higher education in 2018. Greg, thanks for coming back to the show. Lyle, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. And thanks Lyle for your article. I learned a lot from it. It definitely helped my thinking. Um, all of the research we did for the book, um, you know, uh, I, it's, I've learned so much. It's it's changed how I like raise my own children. And your article has made me all that much more scared for my kids starting K through 12. But I, I think I'm going to be that dad <laughs> on, the, on, the, on the board. Well, that, that article would not have been possible without, without fire, Greg. So a uh, big, uh, a big uh, hats off to you.
Thank you. We really appreciate that. Thank you. Good seeing everybody. That was Fire President and CEO Greg Lukianoff and Lewis and Clark Associate Professor of English Lyle Asher. We were discussing Lyle's 2018 Chronicle of Higher Education article, How Ed Schools Became a Menace. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So to Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. We take email feedback at so to speak at thefire.org, and we also take reviews at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. They do help us track listeners to the show, so please leave one if you can. Until next time, I thank you all for listening. <laughs>